0: morning. Thank you for that song. I did, uh, I did request that they sang this song once I realized how connected it was to this passage of scripture or at least some concepts in this passage of scripture. Maybe it was a mistake though because now I'm emotional. <laughs> he had to put it right before the preaching <laughs> but it's good. Thank you for the song. It is good to be with you this morning, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity to worship with you. And I did want to start with just a brief word of thanks. Maddie and I do really appreciate the many texts and gifts and meals and childcare that many of you have provided for us in recent days to celebrate the daughter or the arrival of our new daughter, Piper. Uh, Many of you know she did have a short stay in the NICU, which wasn't very surprising because she was born... A little early, but she's home now. She just came home yesterday, so uh, mom and mom and Piper are both doing fine. Uh, They're they're doing great, and uh, the older daughter is also fine. She's trying to figure out what's going on and why she has been dethroned, but uh, (laughs) she likes her little sister for now, and and we're very grateful to have you as our new church family. As I studied for today, I was reflecting that it, it really... It really wasn't that long ago that my wife and I hopped on a plane to come visit a town that we thought was pronounced Ypsilanti and uh, just to see if this was a good fit. And, and I know it wasn't that long ago, but in, in some ways it feels like it was a different lifetime. And I've heard other people describe major life changes and how they kind of mess with your perception of time. And, and that's been my experience as well. Um, one of the reasons I bring this up in part is because I want to continue the discussion that we started on that Sunday when I candidated from 2 Corinthians. Uh, So please start turning in your copies of Scripture if you have them towards 2 Corinthians. And if you're using one of the Bibles that's underneath the chairs in front of you, then you can find our passage on page 1155. It's page 1155 on the Pew Bibles. I don't expect you to remember, but the question that I believe Paul is asking and answering in the early chapters of 2 Corinthians is, how does ministry happen? And the answer from chapter 5 that I preached to you a few months ago in October was that confidence enables ministry. And I wasn't just saying that people who are generally confident can do more ministry. That's not what Paul was saying either. I wasn't admonishing you to be more charismatic and have higher self-esteem. No, the passage was elevating a specific kind of, of confidence, a confidence in the promises of God, specifically a confidence in the promises, or the promise, rather, of resurrection. And I did my best to show you from those 10 verses in 2 Corinthians 5 that when we truly believe that a physical resurrected body is coming to those who know Christ, when we really believe that, it changes not only the way we live, but the way we do ministry. When we are confident that this life is not all there is, there's another body coming, it frees us up to do ministry with abandon and to go all in on living a life for the glory of God and the discipleship of others. And this morning, we're going to jump backwards in the book of 2 Corinthians, all the way to the beginning and start fresh at the beginning Of Paul's argument. And and one thing to remember when you read this this letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, when you read 2 Corinthians, you need to remember that we're jumping not only into the middle of a conversation, because this isn't the first letter that he'd written to them, we're also jumping into the middle of a relationship, a relationship between Paul and the church at Corinth. They have shared experiences together, and that changes the way Paul communicates with them. And Paul is writing them this letter for a specific reason. Let's just look at those first two verses in the letter. The first two verses, I'll read them for you. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the shared history and ongoing relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, When Paul identifies himself as an apostle in that first verse, that may have rang a little bell in the mind of the Corinthians because they're kind of in the middle of a controversy. Paul is actually kind of fighting for his life and fighting for the affection of this church. There were false teachers at Corinth, and they were claiming that Paul is no true apostle. Now, this isn't the only time that Paul introduces himself as an apostle, but when he does it here, he's making a statement. I am a true apostle. And even when he says the word affliction, we didn't read this verse, but in verse 4, he says the word affliction. And I also believe that the original audience would have thought that to be significant as well, because this controversy that they were in with false teachers at Corinth, really what they were saying against Paul is that he is going through difficulty. He's being beaten. He's being imprisoned. Things are hard for Paul. He must not be blessed by God. No true apostle would go through the suffering that Paul is going through. That's the type of thing that they were saying about him. They were using Paul's trials and difficulties in ministry as evidence that God was against him. And we don't need to search too hard to find churches and denominations Who make this same error today? Those who say, All you need is more faith, and you can have your best life right here. All you need is more faith. And incidentally, the way they would have you show your faith is by giving financially to their ministry. That's how we know that you have faith. But this wrong view of God and this wrong view of suffering isn't only out there, it's also in here, in my heart and in your heart. This wrong view of suffering. When a string of bad things happen to you, the bills are piling up, the kids are rebelling, marriage problems, financial problems, health problems, maybe you get injured and can't work, maybe God takes someone close to you, whatever the suffering is, sometimes we are tempted to respond by questioning if we have done something wrong to make God do this to us. And this is unfortunately a common way that people view God. The problem is it's totally pagan, and I mean that quite literally. Like that, That's how the Greek gods work, not Yahweh, not the God of the Bible. On one hand, it's fitting that Paul has to answer a pagan argument at the, to the church in Corinth, because if you know your biblical maps, Corinth is very close to Athens, which was the heart of Greek thinking and culture just a few hundred years before Paul wrote this letter. Uh, but, uh, But it appears that a little pagan thinking has infiltrated the church at Corinth. Things going well in your life? Well, you have the gods to thank for that. Things not going so well? You must have upset the gods. You better see what you can do to appease them. So Paul writes the letter of 2 Corinthians in part to answer these attacks on his ministry and his apostleship. And as he defends his ministry... We get to hear his philosophy of ministry. The book of 2 Corinthians is so valuable for us to study today, not only because it tells us about who God is, but because it tells us how ministry happens. So the next handful of times that I have the opportunity to preach to you on a Sunday morning, I'll be preaching from 2 Corinthians with the overall topic being, how does ministry happen? And today specifically, Paul will talk about suffering and comfort some familiar verses. He will instruct us on how to respond to difficulties in our life and how we should view God in the midst of our pain. He answers the questions, is God distant from us in our suffering? Is he punishing us for sin? Did God lose control of the universe and now I'm subject to random chaos? Let's look at the passage. I'll read the first 11 verses of the book for you. I'll start in verse 3 because I already read that greeting. So I'll read verses 3 through 11. Follow along in your copy of Scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many, as we seek to wrap our minds around the message that Paul is trying to give to the church at Corinth, it will be helpful to start with a truth that is taught in our passage and I also believe it to be somewhat of a self-evident truth. In your notes, it's called an anchor point. I'll put it on the screen here. This is called an anchor point because we need to remember it and stay close to it as we examine the text in order to get a greater understanding of the entire text. Sorry, it looks like it's cut off a little bit on the screen, but it says that pain is the soil in which comfort can grow. And and that statement really comes from that first phrase in verse 4. If you look in your Bibles, it says, who comforts us in all our affliction. And that word who isn't a question word. That's not a question. That's a, that word who is actually a pronoun. It's basically saying that God is the one who comforts us in all of our affliction. And this is an awesome statement about God, who he is, and how he relates to his children. But don't miss the context in which God's comfort comes. It's in affliction. It's in pain. Similar to how faint light can be seen in darkness. Or how warmth is the most soothing when you come inside after being out in the cold for a long time. Or how the flavor of food is exaggerated when you're really hungry. God's comfort is felt most deeply and often comes to us in the midst of pain and affliction. So stay anchored to this. Pain is the soil in which comfort can grow. That, however, is not the big idea of the text. That's just something I want you to remember as we look at the text. The big idea, the message that I want you to walk out of here thinking about and contemplating, is that God provides pain on purpose. And I do realize the possible recoil at the thought that God gives pain. I do think the songs that we sang were helpful in us grasping this truth. I think many of us though would prefer to say that that God doesn't make us suffer. He just He just allows it, right? I mean, I mean think of the story of Job. Satan wanted to make Job suffer and, and God allowed it to happen, but it was Satan who did it. And in response to that, I would say, yes. Think of the story of Job and look at who that story points to as the ultimate source of his suffering. This may be the most famous story of suffering in the Bible. And after Job loses everything, including his children, this is what he says. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is just Job's summary of his interpretation of what's happened so far. But this isn't the only place where the story of Job attributes what has happened to God. This is the very first chapter. Look at the very last chapter in the story, 42, chapter 42, verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a gold ring. The very first chapter of Job and the very last chapter of Job attribute the pain and suffering that Job went through to God. Was Satan involved? Yes, he was involved. We know how the story goes. Satan wanted to tempt and trick Job into forsaking God, but Satan was merely a pawn in God's sovereign plan. And if we're really going to believe that God is sovereign, which is probably the most comforting attribute of God when we think about suffering, if we're really going to believe that God is sovereign and in control of everything, then we must believe that God doesn't merely allow pain. He causes pain in order to accomplish his purposes. This truth about God's provision of pain isn't only about his sovereignty. It's also about the fact that he's a father. He's a father who cares more about his children than they care about themselves. Do good fathers ever withhold something from their kids? Even things that their kids think they want? Even things that their kids think will be harmful if they don't get them? Yes, good fathers do that sometimes. Do good fathers ever force upon their children something that they don't want, even when the kids think it will be harmful. Good fathers do that, too. The goodness of a father is not determined by whether his children approve of him. I think we recognize this. If I was looking for my two-year-old's approval, I would only feed her cheese and crackers. (laughs) That's all she would eat. But that would not be good for her, no matter how much she thinks she wants it. As we think about pain, suffering, trials, one of the biggest errors that we can make is to think that it's random or meaningless or a punishment for something. But if you know Christ as your Savior today, that couldn't be further from the truth. These first 11 verses in 2 Corinthians show us that God provides pain on purpose. And it tells us what some of those purposes are. We don't get to know everything that God is doing. The Bible isn't meant to answer every question that we have. It's meant to answer the questions that we should be asking. But in his mercy, God has revealed two opportunities that come to us in our pain. And this first opportunity is in your notes. Opportunity number one, your pain can give others comfort and salvation. And this comes from verses three through eight in our text today. And now if that word salvation doesn't sound quite right to you at this point, you're probably not alone and we'll get to it. But for now, let's look at verses 3 and 4 one more time. Verses 3 and 4 say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Your pain can give others comfort. That's one opportunity that you get when you suffer. Now, if our pain is somehow going to be a conduit or a pipeline for comfort to get from one place to another, then we better be sure that we are hooked up to the true source of comfort. And this passage says that God is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, meaning there's no comfort that isn't from God. All true comfort, comes from him. We're tempted to look in other places for comfort though, aren't we? Maybe in a good night's sleep. You can tell I'm thinking about sleep in this stage of life. My wife more so. Maybe we're tempted to look at our health for comfort or a big paycheck or a solid emergency fund. These, these are called if-onlys. If only I could get a good night's sleep then I wouldn't be so grumpy. If only I made a little bit more money then I would feel secure. Then I could be generous. If only, if only, where do you look for comfort? Maybe at the bottom of a big bowl of cookie dough ice cream. Maybe not. If you're laughing, maybe it's because we know it's true that we tend to look for comfort in places that we know can't satisfy. And it's a little embarrassing how easily we are pleased. There's probably some scenarios where it's a virtue to need less than what's being offered to you, but not when what is being offered is the comfort of God. Like when God says to his children, I want to be your comfort. I'm the source of all comfort, and I want you to be totally satisfied in me. And we say, "Uh, ice cream is enough for me. That's not virtuous, to need less than what's being offered. That's called idolatry. To want something that God wants to be for you. God wants to be this for you and you look somewhere else for it. That's idolatrous. That's being satisfied too easily. If our pain is going to be meaningful for others, we need to be right with God. We need to be hooked up to the source of comfort. This is so often how Paul writes before he gets to the part where we can minister to others. He talks about how we need to be right with God. How are you supposed to comfort others if you're not hooked up to the tank of comfort? It's not going to happen because God is the source of all comfort. And make no mistake, this is the comfort of the cross. This is the comfort of the gospel. When Paul says comfort here, he's talking about the fact that we were stuck and dead in our sins. And apart from God's intervention, we would still be there. But the good news that the Bible teaches in the Gospels and in other places is that God did intervene. God did send Jesus to save you from your sin and from yourself so that all who believe can have a restored relationship with the Father and their lives can have meaning again. And if we get this right, if we're connected to God by the living word, we have a daily relationship with God through the written words of Scripture, if we're connected to the source of comfort, then we can be a comfort to others even when they are afflicted and in pain. This happens by preaching the gospel to them, whether they're saved or unsaved. That's what they need. They need the comfort and the truths of the gospel. Look at verse 4 again. Look in your Bibles at verse 4. There's some words in there that seem unimportant. They seem like filler words. But you need to underline these words in your Bible more often. The words are so that... Verse 4 says, God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's called a purpose statement, and we need to watch out for these when we read our Bibles. They help us understand the argument that the author is making. Why does God give comfort in affliction? Why has he brought me through hard times? I want to know the reason, God. Why did you do this? Well, he says here, so that you can minister to someone else. Not only is God the source of all comfort, but God gives his children comfort for a reason. He does it on purpose. Both the pain and the comfort are on purpose. And one of those purposes that God has when he gives his children pain is that they would then turn and comfort others who are in pain. And as Paul wrote this, he knew something about affliction, didn't he? He was acquainted with pain in a way that you and I probably will not be. And how does he view his affliction? He's not, he's not relaxed about it. He's not carefree. He believes it matters, but he also isn't thrown by it. And, and Paul doesn't view the pain that God provides him as pointless or even as a necessary evil or, or something that he has to just put his head down and power through. He views his pain as an opportunity not only to get comfort from God, but to give comfort to someone else, someone else who is suffering. And Paul would later in the book or in the letter write about so many of the afflictions that he went through in chapter 11, he would list probably 15 things that you and I have never experienced, including being whipped, including being shipwrecked, and being without hunger, and losing sleep, and being without food, in and all, in all of that affliction, of which there was plenty. Paul could have been thinking of any number of those things in verse 4 when he, when he writes about affliction. And he probably did have something specific in mind, and the original audience might have even known what it was. But no matter what it was, the point for us is the same. Affliction happens to us so that we can receive comfort from God and pass on that comfort to others who are also afflicted. And we see both here and in verse 8 that one of the ways this happens is by example. We're going to take the verses out of order here. Jump down to verse 8. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, Of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. More evidence here that Paul is probably talking about some specific suffering in his life, but the key thought here and the key word is example. Paul wants them to comfort others when they make it through hard times, and that's exactly what he does in verse 8. I've said that the first opportunity that God gives us is the opportunity to comfort others. And sometimes we overcomplicate, though. Like, maybe we think like Moses when God told him to go rescue the people from Egypt. And Moses thinks, well, I'm, I'm not skilled at speaking. I'm not sure I can do that. Maybe when we hear we're supposed to go comfort others with the affliction we've been through, we feel like we're not qualified or we're not sure how to do that. Well, that's okay. Like, you don't always have to speak in order for people to see this. This happens by example. When you live in close community with other believers, that's why we call this a community of grace, a lot of your life should just be visible. The way you respond to difficulty should be visible to those around you. And there definitely comes a time to speak up. There comes a time to give verbal testimony. But when we're all living together in this community of grace and sharing our lives with one another, it's going to be evident who is responding well to trials and who is not. And that example of suffering well can be so powerful to others who are watching your life, to the younger generation that's watching us. Like, it's it's important to live well, obviously. It's important to suffer well for our own sake and for our joy in the gospel. And it's important to tell the younger generation this is how things are, God does things for a purpose. But what are they going to remember? They're going to remember how you actually acted when the bills were piling up, when someone attacked you unjustly. They're going to see your example. And this is what Paul is elevating in himself. We didn't want you to be unaware of the affliction we went through. We wanted you to see how we respond so that you know how to respond when something similar happens to you. Close community life causes people to see the way that we respond to our afflictions. And this is also fleshed out in verses 5 and 6 where we see that both the suffering of Christ and the comfort of Christ are shared with his people and they share them with one another and that the comfort often comes through the pain that God provides. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation There's that word that maybe some of you are wondering about. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Now this passage can be kind of a mouthful at times. That's one thing I noticed as I was studying for this. Like, which comfort are we talking about here? Is referring to what? Kind of a mouthful. But it's basically saying that first we share the suffering with Christ. And then we share the comfort. Next, our affliction and our pain is the comfort um, is for the comfort and salvation of others. The affliction and pain that we experience is for comfort and salvation of others. But here's the thing. Our comfort is also, or Paul's comfort is also, for the comfort of others. Confused yet? I'm getting a little confused up here. Paul is saying, whether he gets comfort or pain, it translates to something positive for the Corinthians. Whether I'm afflicted, whether I'm comforted, it's for your comfort. But how is Paul's affliction for the salvation of the Corinthians? What does he mean by that? Really, as you you look into it, it it comes down to two possibilities of what Paul could could be meaning when he says that my affliction is for your salvation. He could mean that it's for their sanctification. At first, that sounds like a little bit of a leap, but actually, when Paul writes about salvation in the New Testament, he writes about it in past tense, present tense, and future tense, all over the place. The theolo- theological words for this are justification, sanctification, and glorification. They're all part of this umbrella term, salvation. So all right, We are saved, and we're being saved, and we will one day be fully saved. And it's not a contradiction there. So it could be that Paul is saying My affliction is for your sanctification, meaning I'm willing to stand up to these false teachers, even though they're slandering me, even though they're attacking me, even though they're tearing down what I've built in Corinth for your sake. I'm willing to stand up to them and go through more pain so that you can continue to be sanctified by the gospel ministry that I've built in your town. He could mean that, he could mean sanctification. Or he could be referring back to the establishment of the church in Corinth. He could be saying, it was through my labor and my toil that there is even a church in Corinth to begin with, and you would have never heard the gospel if I didn't go through the pain and affliction of uh, groundbreaking gospel work there. That's what Paul is saying. One of those two things, maybe a little bit of both, that uh, my affliction has resulted in your salvation. He's not taking credit for their right standing with God. Obviously that comes only through Jesus's suffering, but Paul shared in that suffering in order to get the gospel to them in a way that they could understand it. Whether he was referring to their sanctification ongoing or the original justification, planting of the church in Corinth, whatever he means, the point for us is the same. The comfort of the cross is meant to be shared with others, and it so often can only be shared through a willingness to suffer for those that we are trying to share it with. What are you willing to go through for the salvation of others? Are you willing to be laughed at and mocked? Are you willing to be threatened and fired? Is the comfort that you have received from God in the gospel worth sharing with others? And are you, what are you willing to do in order to share? it? And then verse 7, if you look there, mentions that Paul is confident in their salvation because of their willingness to suffer. Look at verse 7. He says, Our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, So also you are sharers of our comfort. The suffering is proof of their genuineness. Why would they be willing to suffer? Only because they really believe that the gospel is true. They are willing to stake their lives and livelihood upon it. And notice how that's the exact opposite of the argument that the false teachers are making about Paul. The false teachers are saying, Paul is suffering. He must be a phony. God wouldn't allow his apostles to suffer. Suffering proves that he's false. Paul is saying your suffering proves that you are genuine. I know you're a partaker in the gospel because you're willing to suffer for the gospel. So we've seen in this first part of our passage that Paul viewed his pain as an opportunity to bring comfort and salvation to others. There is another opportunity that our pain provides us, And after looking at it, we'll seek to apply both of these opportunities to our lives today. The second opportunity is not focused outward, but inward. Your pain can give yourself greater dependence on God. So our pain can give others uh, comfort and salvation, but your pain can give yourself greater dependence on God. We see this in verses 9 through 11. After talking about the great affliction that they had recently experienced in Asia, Paul goes on to say this in verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also, joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Something that I hope you noticed when I read those verses are another so that. Once again, Paul tells us the purpose of pain. It was so that they would not trust in themselves, but in God. And there's basically two reactions that we can have to pain. It's either despair or dependence. Pain can frustrate us and cause us to turn inward and think about ourselves more. Or it can get our attention And turn our gaze to God and encourage us to lean on God. The one who graciously gives us pain for a purpose. And your pain is designed to make you depend on him more. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And what do they need roused to? What about God does Paul emphasize in these last three verses? What do we need reminded of when we're going through difficulty? Well, there's two reminders in your notes. The first one is future deliverance. That's what we need reminded of when we're in pain, future deliverance. He calls God the God who raises the dead. And I know this seems simple, but sometimes we forget simple truths. We don't serve a God who prevents suffering. We serve a God who gives us suffering, brings us through it, and delivers us on the other side of it. And when we're talking about death, he raises us on the other side of it. The greatest affliction and the greatest suffering that humans are going to experience is death. And we aren't promised protection from it, but deliverance through it. And as I meditated on this concept a story came to mind, and many of you are familiar with it. The most famous Puritan work of all time is Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is an extended allegory to tell the story of the Christian life. And nearing the end of Christian's journey to the celestial city, you you may remember he had to cross the River of Death. He was with someone named Hopeful at this time, so the characters are Christian and Hopeful. And there's a, I'd like to read this portion of the dialogue that they have as they're crossing the river of death, which is symbolizing physical death, but is portrayed as deep water that they have to walk through, and they even have to sink underneath. It's so deep that they can't touch the ground, but they have to cross it in order to get to the celestial city. Christian says, Ah, brother, surely if I was right with the king, he would rise now to rescue me. But on account of my sins, he has brought me into this snare and has abandoned me. Then Hopeful said, My brother, you have quite forgotten the text where it is said of the wicked, For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. These troubles and distresses you are experiencing in these waters are no indication that God has abandoned you. Rather, they are sent to test you to see whether or not you will recall the evidences of his past goodness and rely upon him in your present distresses. And this encouragement that Hopeful gave to Christian strengthened him, and he again began to see some of the glory that was waiting for him on the other side of the river of death. And it motivated him to keep going, to keep going in faith and to believe that God was going to deliver him even from a trial as death. We should not think of difficulty and affliction and pain as something to be avoided at all costs. We should rejoice at the suffering God stewards to us and seek to increase our dependence on God as a result on it, intentionally remembering all the good things that God has done for us, both now and in the past, because suffering can really drown out the very real blessings that are in our life. And if we really look at our lives soberly, we start to recognize just how good of a God we do serve. And this is true even for people who have had truly very hard lives. I don't consider myself among those who have suffered much in their physical bodies. I consider myself among, you know, the richest humans that have ever lived when you consider the context of history and where we find ourselves on the globe. But no matter the suffering that you experience personally, we can have confidence that God gives us the suffering that he does give us for a reason. And future deliverance is the first thing that Paul thought his, his readers needed reminded of. The second reminder is help from God's people. Look at verse 11, the last verse, where Paul expresses his thankfulness to the church for their assistance. He says, You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. We don't only need reminded of future deliverance when we're in the midst of pain. We need to be reminded that God's people are here to help us. This is what it means to be part of a community of grace. Paul believed that the prayers of the Corinthians were a help to him in the suffering that he described as being burdened excessively beyond his strength. And one of the ways, one of the most obvious ways to express your dependence on God is to pray and ask for deliverance. But here the emphasis is on other people were praying for Paul. And there was favor bestowed on Paul because of the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's so dependent on God, and that made him thankful for the prayers that were given to him or given for him. And we've arrived at the end of the passage. God provides pain on purpose. Why does he do it? Well, to give opportunities, and, and two opportunities that God has revealed in this passage is the opportunity to bring others comfort and salvation and the opportunity to increase our own dependence on God. How does this passage and these truths change the way that we live? We've got this mental shift, but how does, how does it change the things that we do? And I have five questions for each of us to consider as a result of knowing that God provides pain on purpose. And think of these questions and even the categories of these questions as a starting point. I'm going to offer some thoughts on each of them, but I think they'll be more valuable for you to delve into on your own. Each of these questions is from their own separate category. You'll see it on the screen here. The first category is inward. How should I think about my own pain? And we kind of already talked about, we should think think of it as a gift from God that reminds you of how dependent you are on him. This applies to everything from stubbing your toe to a broken leg. Everything from seasonal allergies to terminal illness. All of your pain can result in a greater dependence on God and a reminder that you're not God. I'm not trying to say this as if it was easy. I'm not even trying to say it as if it's natural or something that you can do apart from supernatural intervention. The natural response to pain is complaining and anxiety, fear. But followers of the sovereign God should seek to put off complaining and to put off anxiety and to replace it with thanksgiving and prayer because although it doesn't feel like it when we're suffering, we have faith that God knows what he is doing and that it is good. We're too quick to question God's goodness when instead we should be questioning whether we even know what goodness is. Go back to the example of the kid that only wants cheese and crackers. They genuinely believe that that would be good for them. But the loving father knows more than the kid knows. It wouldn't be good, not in the long run. Couldn't we be doing similar things to God as a child asking for crackers right before supper? Couldn't we be rejecting something good because we don't really know what goodness is as fallen, finite humans? Is there not a greater difference between God and you than there is between you and a two-year-old? Think about the wealth of knowledge that God has that we don't. We reject the goodness of God when we complain in the pain that he provides us. The next question is outward. How should I think about the pain of others? knowing that our salvation is a salvation through affliction, not normally a protection from affliction, that should change the way we pray for others. It should also probably change the things we ask others to pray for us. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting physical healing or praying for physical healing. But if that's all we want from God, I fear that we're missing something. I fear that sometimes we want the gifts of God more and we want God himself. Prayer with and for those who are suffering is so important, and it's good to pray for physical healing. God wants to do that. But you should also be praying that God would accomplish his purpose in the pain, that God would bring about their sanctification, the ability to minister to others. Praying only for physical deliverance is an incomplete, albeit good, prayer request. There's more that we can pray for. Third question is a leadership question. How do I teach others and be there for others in their pain? Paul said in verse 4 of our passage that we are comforted in our affliction so that we can comfort others. And it's a wonderful thing to be a part of a church family and to know that there are people near you who truly care about you. One thing that should be said, though, is that different kinds of people need different kinds of help when they're suffering. Some people want to be surrounded by hugs and handshakes when they're going through something hard. Some people, that's the last thing they want, right? Some people just want one close friend to sit with them quietly. We need to minister to different people differently, and it takes wisdom to know who is who. As you seek to comfort other people who are in pain, consult with those who are closest to them so that you can help them in the best way possible. Some people go through something hard and get surrounded by offers of help that end up stressing them out. My wife and I are in a debt of grace to you for your careful ministry to us over the last couple weeks. Like to to give an over-the-top example of something that didn't happen, it would not have been helpful for us if there was a reception waiting at our house when we came home with our new preemie baby. And there's this parade of people who want to hold the baby. Obviously, that would never happen. But I'm just giving you an example of that could be a good-hearted intention, right? We want to be there. We want to help you. What we got, though, was text messages and conversations of, hey, we're available. We can help you if you want no expectation, that's actually helpful. That's really helpful, and we are in your debt for that. That's how you minister to someone wisely, so thank you. The fourth question is corporate. How do we build a culture where we can suffer together and rejoice together? In verse 8, Paul said, we don't want you to be unaware. How easy it would be to jump over that phrase as if it wasn't significant for our lives as a church family. He wanted to share his affliction with the body of Christ. Do you have to share every hard detail of your life with everyone? No. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Paul is doing. But he's setting an example of involving brothers and sisters in Christ in the hard parts of our lives. God has set us up to live in community. Christianity is not Jesus and me. It's not a solo endeavor. It's a journey that we're on together, joined together, baptized together into one body. That's why we call the church, once again, a community of grace. and That's one of the reasons that church membership is so important. It can be such an anchor in someone's life. And you start to realize it when you know people who are suffering that don't have that church family. That's become very real for, for Maddie and I, who know some individuals going through difficult things right now, and they're, we're not close to them geographically anymore, and it's so easy to, to help people when, or to help them get the help that they need when they are connected to a church. But when you're not connected to church, like, what do you, what do, you do? Where do you go for help? There's supposed to be a culture of love, help, and accountability within local churches. So, so as we evaluate our local church corporately, each of us should ask ourselves, can we explain to someone why they should be a member of our church? Like, we, we believe in church membership. We have church membership classes. But can you, as an individual, take someone and say, this is why, from the Bible, you should think about church membership? And it doesn't necessarily have to be here, but that we believe it's biblical. Can you do that yourself? Do we have a plan to involve people who are new to our membership so that they get integrated? And are you a piece of that integration and assimilation? Could you help a new member from being overwhelmed by clicks and groups, or would they easily be overwhelmed by clicks and groups? Are you someone who is welcoming without being overwhelming? We should ask ourselves are we contributing to the culture that encourages the sharing of life with one another so that others feel free to share their joys and their burdens? Also ask ourselves, do I know how to communicate to new believers and potential members that we need them in order to accomplish our mission? And I really think this one is important, particularly for some of the upcoming generations. Now there's probably only limited helpfulness in dividing people into groups and you know, thinking of them in terms of you know, their age or their gender or whatever it is, but, but there is some utility in it. And these upcoming generations Sometimes they're called millennials and Generation Z. Millennials would be about age 27 to 42, Gen Z, ages 11 to 26. One of the observations that people have made about these groups of people, maybe specifically the men, is that if they don't feel like they're needed, they're not going to stick around. Can you communicate to someone why they're needed in the church? Why they're needed for the culture of rejoicing and suffering and bearing one another's burdens. Is that something that you have the ability to explain to someone? The fifth question is a God word. Does this theology of pain reveal that I have the wrong view of God? Suffering is a reminder that we're not God. We're weak and we need a savior. And additionally, I know that it's easier to think of God as the source of comfort, than it is as the source of pain. But the Bible does make clear that he is sovereign and providential over all. Both our comforts and our afflictions ultimately are coming from him. And if you have trusted Christ and you're going through something hard, it's coming from the Father of mercies who wants you to learn more about him in his suffering, to know him so you can become like him, And just like him, one day you'll be resurrected and all the suffering will be finished. We want so badly to avoid the suffering in between now and the future glory that we're promised. We want the glory now, not later, not as a result of suffering. Once again, we're like the kid who wants to fill up on crackers because they have no idea about the carefully marinated meat that is waiting for them at supper. And that if we just hang on just a little longer, we will be satisfied with something so much greater than what we want now in the moment. God is like the parent who forces the child to wait, giving pain, not only on purpose, but for a purpose. And it's for the good of the child. We need to view God as the sovereign father working for our good in painful experiences. I've made the claim that in 2 Corinthians, Paul is answering the question, how does ministry happen? And the answer today is that ministry happens as we experience difficulty, choose to rely on God and be comforted by his character, his promises, his people, and then share that comfort of God with others. If you know Christ today, don't think of your suffering as a punishment coming from him. It will lead you to untrue conclusions about him. I'm going to close with some other verses in 2 Corinthians that are very related to this concept. And Lord willing, in a number of months, I'll have the opportunity to preach them to you as well. If you still have your Bibles open, you can look at the end of 2 Corinthians 4. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart in verse 16. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Pray with me as we close. Father, thank you for being a father who loves us, and thank you for knowing how to love us better than we know how to love ourselves. I ask you to continue giving us pain, because we know that you give pain for a reason and you're preparing us for glory that we can't even imagine. Give us a willingness to suffer for the gospel and for you and help us to not question your goodness in the midst of pain. Thank you for this church family that is, that is committed to serving one another and serving you. And I pray that you would increase our reach in the community so that others can share in the gospel that we have found great joy in and meaning in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.